to the Liberal Europe podcast, the European Liberal Forum project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be speaking with Professor Francisco Vega. Professor Vega is a full professor of economics, the dean of the School of Economics and Management at the University of Minho in Portugal, and also an author of scientific papers in the area of economics and management. And after our conversation, I'll introduce you to some of the events organized by ELF for the last two weeks of November. I'm here with Professor Francisco Vega. Professor, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. You are welcome. It's a pleasure to participate in a podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, thank you for coming. And before we get a little deeper into the paper that you co-authored with uh, Professor Ari Eisen, um, and that paper is called How Does Political Instability Affect Economic Growth? Um, I would like to get a little bit into your story before to our listeners. So what got you to the point where you are right now? You're interested in economics, interested in education. What was the path travel until you get here? Well, in, in terms of uh, my um, academic career, basically I, I studied international relations at the undergraduate level, uh, European studies at the master level, and then at the PhD uh, studied economics. And so given this background, uh, most of my research tends to combine economics with political science, always in an international perspective. And also my, my research tends to be mostly empirical. What I like the most is to gather real data and use it to test theories and hypotheses rather than working with theoretical models. And well, presently, uh, since I'm dean of a school, I'm a bit busier with administrative issues and uh, have uh, less time available for research and teaching. But whenever I can, I try to go back to my research on these issues, combining economics and political science and trying to do something new. So you're coming from a very eclectic background, and that is uh, international relations, European studies. So when you decided to take your PhD in economics, was that like a normal development, or did you have to change your focus a little bit because of the background that you had? No, it was uh, quite a normal development because um, my my undergraduate degree in international relations had, uh, at the time, two specializations, and the one I took was on economic and political issues. So let's say mm -hmm. practically one half of the program was already economics and the same happened at the master level. And also I started teaching uh, at, here at the University of Minho and uh, the courses I taught were essentially in economics. So the I'd say the most normal uh, path to take at PhD level would be a PhD in economics. Uh, during which I had uh, many courses on international economics, uh, so going to my background of international relations. And in my PhD dissertation, I, I, also, I also combined uh, the, all these issues, so economics at an international level and combining with political science. So although it seems uh, kind of a strange path, uh, it is... Uh, I'd say it is the one that uh, that got me here, and it was, uh, let's say, a progressive path 
towards uh, towards economics, but all, always with a background that allows me to take a look uh, at other areas and combine perspectives from other areas, which is which I, I think it is very very interesting, rather than looking just at very specific economic issues. Now, I ask you to come uh, to the podcast to talk about that uh, article, scientific article that I already mentioned, and that is political instability, how does it affect economic growth, and this was published in the European Journal of Political Economy, but you have other relevant articles published. Do you want to mention one in particular that you think that our listeners could get familiar with and it will help to them understand the work you do? Yes, uh, I would actually suggest two. Uh, so uh, let's say the first one I would suggest is a paper that I uh, that I published uh, in 2016 and, uh, in the European Economic Review, uh, whose title is Public Spending and Growth, the Role of Government Accountability. Essentially, what I and uh, uh, Professor Morozumi from the University of Nottingham do in this, uh, in this paper is to look at the role of institutions in the nexus between public spending and economic growth. And essentially what we find is that uh, public spending tends to be more effective in terms of generating higher rates of economic growth when uh, the government is more accountable uh, towards voters, uh, towards the population in general. Uh, when accountability is lower, then this effectiveness is much smaller, eventually because of corruption or because of less bureaucratic efficiency. Uh, and so this is... Uh, I think this is a nice paper to look at uh, the relationship between institutions and the importance of institutions for economic growth. Uh, then another another article uh, I would I would recommend. Uh, it's more um, towards uh, political science, but it still combines with uh, with economics, and it was published in the, uh, in the journal Electoral Studies in 2017, and it focuses on political budget cycles and media freedom. And so, essentially, these political budget cycles are cycles in um, fiscal policy. Um, that appear close to elections. Basically, the tendency to increase government expenditure or to reduce taxes shortly before elections as a way to gain more votes. And there's there's a big literature in this area and um, which identifies several conditioning factors of these political budget cycles, that is, circumstances in which they tend to prevail um, in which they tend to prevail more than in other circumstances. And what we do is to compare um, the results for, for these uh, many conditioning factors. And the one we emphasize is media freedom. That is, in countries in which uh, there is a greater degree of media freedom and people have more access to, to news, they are better informed about what the government is doing and on how the government is managing public finances. And so in these countries, this opportunistic manipulation of fiscal policy tends to be much smaller than in countries in which media, the media is not sufficiently free to show exactly what the government is doing. 
So I think this would be also an interesting topic for our listeners. Oh, and interesting topics for podcasts. And I will have you back to talk about accountability and corruption and this one in particular, and that is electoral governmental decisions. <laughs> and, and I'm laughing and because you already understood by the name, Professor Francisco Viega is also Portuguese as I am. So uh, we um, know what we're talking about about this. The particular part with medium <laughs> freedom, that is really interesting and it's uh, well-deserved for us to explore. But getting back to political stability and economic growth. Before we get a little more detail about this paper and how the, it connects a little bit to the topic of this podcast, which is liberal values and policies, can you please describe to our listeners the main research question of the paper and uh, what was the question that you, was trying to, you were trying to answer, you and Professor Ari Eisen from the International Monetary Fund? Well, essentially, the purpose of this paper is to uh, determine the effects of political instability on economic growth. And so there, there's a literature showing that political instability affects several economic variables. I have some research showing that greater political instability tends to lead to more inflation, Uh, there is also a big literature showing that higher political instability tends to reduce investment, especially foreign investment. And, and given this effect of political instability on several uh, macroeconomic variables, uh, there's also the possibility that it negatively affects economic growth, basically in the sense that uh, if governments are changing frequently, Uh, then policies are also changing frequently. And then uh, entrepreneurs and, uh, and most economic agents in general don't know exactly what to expect from the future. And mm -hmm. when that happens, they tend to invest less. And with uh, smaller amounts of investment, then we should have uh, slower economic growth. And so basically what we did was to collect uh, data for as many countries as we could. We started with uh, 169 countries. Then depending on the variables we include in the model, uh, the number of countries reduces because we don't always have information for all the countries. Uh, but essentially we tried to uh, build uh, as big a sample as possible and uh, use these data, several indicators of political instability and relate with uh, economic growth and check if in fact uh, there is an, a, negative, uh, a negative effect of, uh, of political instability on the rate of economic growth. And you just mentioned the model and we have to get maybe a little bit technical here, not too much, I hope. And that is because the model, this is important for another question that I have to you, has to do with economic freedom. But can you describe us then a little bit the model you constructed? Sure. I'll try not to be too technical, uh, just give the, the general picture. So essentially, uh, what we are doing is um, using data for many countries uh, over a long period of time from 1960 to 2004 to uh, estimate uh, a model of economic growth. 
And so looking at the literature on economic growth, um, which is a very big one, and uh, there is some consensus on the main determinants of economic growth, basically we have the rate of economic growth for each country uh, in a given period of time. Basically, we divide the sample in five-year periods. We do that rather than using annual data because economic growth from one year to the next could be affected by short-term factors. And so we, we prefer to work with five-year periods so that uh, we are not as dependent of the fluctuations around the business cycle. But essentially, so we have as dependent variable the rate of economic growth over a five-year period. And then as explanatory variables, uh, we have, let's say, the usual ones in studies of economic growth. And one uh, very common in these studies is the initial level of GDP per capita. And this is based on the notion that uh, poorer countries should converge in terms of income with richer ones. That is, they have they are farther from, from the level of the, of the richer countries. And so we do expect them to catch up. It doesn't always happen, but this hypothesis of convergence is something that is always included uh, in, the, in the model. Then um, looking at uh, the models of economic growth, a very important variable is investment. And so we have the share of investment in gross domestic product. Uh, it has also been argued in most studies that education is very important for economic mm -hmm. growth in the sense that a more educated population uh, would have uh, what we call a greater level of human capital and this would generally lead to a greater productivity of labor. That is, each worker would be able to produce more. And so we include a variable to account for education. Then we also consider uh, the rate of population growth, which uh, is also considered in most of these studies. Um, and uh, we also include uh, trade openness, uh, assuming that countries which are more open to international trade benefit more from it in the sense that uh, they can export what they do best to other countries and import the goods they don't produce or in which they are not as efficient from from other countries. And so most of the literature would tend to say that uh, international trade is beneficial for, mm -hmm. for the countries. And so this is, let's say, the, the basic set of variables that we include. And then to account for uh, political instability, we start uh, with a variable um, which is called cabinet changes. It was taken from a database, which is the cross-national time series database. And essentially what this variable does is to count the number of times in a year in which a new premier is named or 50% uh, of the cabinet posts are occupied by new ministers. So mm -hmm. either, let's say, we have a new prime minister or in a presidential system we have a new president or at least one half of the government changes. Mm -hmm. 
And this variable counts the number of times this happens in each country in each year. And so uh, countries with uh, higher political instability would tend to have more frequent changes of government. Uh, so let's say the normal would be every four years or every five, depending on the length of the constitutionally defined term uh, in each country. For example, in Portugal would be four years. So it would be normal to have a cabinet change every four years. Uh, but of course, sometimes governments fall uh, before the end of the term and a new government comes. Um, sometimes, in more extreme cases, uh, we have uh, coup d'etats which turn down democ a democratic regime and then we have a dictatorship and then democracy comes again. So in the most extreme cases, um, we can have several of these cabinet changes in just one year. So there are some outliers which have like five cabinet changes in just one year. Uh, if we count the five-year period, then the normal thing would be to have one or two cabinet changes. Sometimes we have much more. Uh, so that's essentially our first uh, proxy variable for uh, political instability. It has to do with the rotation. Then um, we also include in the model other institutional variables. And this we do this because Institutions are, of course, very important for economic growth and also because the, the instability could be related to or could uh, come from, from other institutional characteristics. And so we want to control for those in order to make sure that what the uh, political instability variable is capturing is just the effect of political instability on economic growth. And so in terms of other institutional variables, we consider economic freedom. Basically, we use the index of economic freedom from the report of economic freedom in the world. Um, and this has five areas of economic freedom, of which I can talk later on. Uh, we also consider um, ethnic homogeneity. Basically, because we have observed that in many countries, uh, political instability comes from ethnic conflicts. That is, countries which have a very high ethnic diversity uh, tend to have more, more conflicts. And so we include uh, an ethnic homogeneity index to control for this. And then finally, we consider um, a variable which characterizes um, how democratic the regime is. Um, this is essentially a, a democ democracy scale, which goes from minus 10, in the case of a, a very tough dictatorship, to plus 10, which would be, let's say, a full demo democratic uh, regime. So here, basically, we are testing if democracy has, uh, by itself, uh, an effect on economic growth. Uh, then we uh, sometimes include other other variables like other macroeconomic variables like inflation and and, and uh, size of government. Uh, but those are basically uh, additional tests. They are not the, the main the main part of the of the model. Let's focus a little more. 
because again this podcast has to do with uh, with liberal policies and liberal values and we like to think that economic freedom is one of those so when you decided to add the index of economic freedom to the model uh, what was the main uh, reason for that the main purpose to include this variable to try to get some results then well, the main reason is that uh, this index of economic freedom combines uh, several areas which uh, have been found to be important for economic growth. Um, for example, uh, the first area is size of government. And uh, for a long time, there has been a discussion on whether big government uh, is good or bad for growth. Uh, we don't have a definite answer, but um, there is a, there's always a discussion whether we should leave more ground for uh, private um, initiative or whether the government mm -hmm. should control a bigger part of the economy. We tend to believe, uh, most economists, that when the government goes beyond a certain level, uh, which we economists haven't defined precisely. But basically, we tend to believe that there should be an optimal size of government beyond which uh, it starts having a negative effect. Of course, we believe that the government should have some role in the economy that is present uh, since Adam Smith uh, in the Wealth of Nations. Yes. Um, although there is an invisible hand there's also in uh, the wealth of nations a role for government because there are some functions in society which have to be uh, done by the government because private uh, initiative doesn't have an interest or is not capable of, of doing so. Uh, one of them is, of course, national defense. Um, and so the size of government is one area. A second area in this index which uh, also has been considered by Adam Smith, is the legal structure and security of property rights. So the importance of securing property rights is something that we read in The Wealth of Nations and most of, and most of the other books, because as we know, if uh, uh, an entrepreneur invests and uh, is successful, uh, becomes rich, but then comes the government and expropriates everything, of course, this investor will never invest again because he believes that he's wasting his effort and money. And so uh, these legal, uh, the legal system has also been found to be important in many studies related to economic growth. Then the third area is access to sound money. And this basically has to do whether we have uh, a currency which is stable rather than having one with very, very high inflation, which is losing value every day. Um, then the fourth area is freedom to exchange with foreigners. So here comes international trade, which I already mentioned is important for economic growth. And the, the fifth and final area of this index is the flexibility of regulation in credit, labor and business. And most economists will tend to believe that flexible regulation is helpful for business uh, while if we regulate too much then the market uh, doesn't work as well and so these areas are very important and another reason for including this index at the same time 
that we include a democracy index is the discussion between which freedom is more important for economic growth. Some people argue that mm -hmm. uh, economic freedom is more important for economic growth than democracy. That is one of the that is one of the results of the study that are really interesting. Yes, that is that is one of the things that we find, which is consistent with previous findings. Uh, we tend to uh, when we compare the, of course, the well-being in democracies. Uh, with the well-being, average well-being in uh, non-democracies, we generally find that democracies perform better. Uh, they are, tend to be richer. Uh, one reason could be, of course, that democracy is good for economic growth. Another reason could be that together with democracy, we tend to have other institutional features uh, which are related to economic freedom. And so it may be important to disentangle these, uh, these two and control for both types of freedom uh, and if it is really democracy by itself that helps economic growth or rather are the other freedoms that we, in, in our countries, in Europe, we tend to have together with democracy, but in some other parts of the world, that is not the case. For example, if we look at, uh, at China, it's, it is obviously not a democracy, but there is some degree of economic freedom. And we may say the same thing about other countries in, in Asia. And if we go farther back in time, we could look at Latin America and, uh, for example, see uh, a very tough dictatorship, which I wouldn't like to have, uh, which was the case of Chile, but in economic growth, they they actually did well, and so uh, these things uh, need to be need to be both accounted for, so that we can separate the effects. Maybe some liberal ideas at economic level, and we can go to Washington consensus and so on and so forth, like you just mentioned on South America. Can they coexist with illiberal policies at the government level? They can. Um, for example, when you look at, uh, at Chile under Pinochet, he basically he, he brought uh, several people from uh, the University of Chicago uh, to advise him on economic issues. Mm -hmm. And they actually implemented a lot of economic uh, policies which went in the direction of greater economic freedom. At the same time, we had a terrible political regime, which uh, imprisoned and sometimes killed uh, the opponents. So uh, I wouldn't recommend having a Pinochet just because the economy grows faster. But when we are strictly uh, testing for economic growth, it may happen that uh, a country which is not democratic uh, actually, as an economy which is growing faster than than some democratic countries. Now, there is one result that you found in your study that I'm very interested in and I would like to have your opinion, and that is the area that explains better in your model regarding still the index of economic freedom was strong legal structures and property rights. Can you elaborate a little more? Why did you, why did you think that this one is a stronger uh, than the other ones? Well, uh, there's a, 
as I said, there there is a long literature on on these. Uh, on this topic, the relation between a legal system, how well it works, and how secure are property rights and economic growth. Uh, part of it I already mentioned, which is uh, the fact that without secure property rights, people don't feel confident enough to invest. And so, um, mm -hmm. if uh, you believe that uh, there is a high probability uh, that your uh, income, uh, your wealth will be expropriated. What you try to do is to take your money out of the country. And so instead of investment and uh, resulting economic growth, you have capital flight and people trying to put their money in uh, Swiss bank accounts or in the Cayman Islands or in some other place and uh, invest elsewhere. And so when property rights are not secure, it is very, very complicated to have private investment. You can have the government investing, but of course, uh, public investment uh, does not always work as well as private investment because, well, the incentives are not exactly the same for one and the other. Then the, the legal structure and also the let's say the efficiency of the of the legal system is also very important and it is important because when when you invest and when you have a firm um, which is being successful of course you are you have contracts with many other firms either because you sell them goods or you buy them goods um, and you want these contracts uh, to uh, have value you know, when you sell to someone and it's this uh, other, your client is supposed to pay you within uh, agreed upon time frame. Let's say you agree that it, the, the firm will pay you within 30 days. You really want to be paid. If you are not paid, you go to court. If the courts don't work or if they take years to solve a case, then you feel that the laws are not really coming into force and that contracts are not uh, uh, really worth uh, a lot. And in that case, uh, well, you, you tend to invest less because you know that you may have to find other alternatives to have the contracts being honored. And that's costly, of course. And so this is very important, not just for the firms that are already implemented in the market, uh, but especially if we, if a country would like to attract foreign direct investment. Because when uh, a multinational firm is considering the possibility of investing in a country, uh, something they will surely uh, want to know is whether the legal system works well, whether contracts are enforced or not. And so this area has always been very, very important and focused in most of the literature. As I said, Adam Smith already talked about this. Mm -hmm. So the two areas that also come up really uh, often when we talk about liberal values in, pol in, in economics, and that is flexibility of regulation and free trade. Can I theorize in a little bit uh, that 
those two and that is flexibility of regulation and uh, free trade are downstream from the stronger legal structure and the property rights if i if 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 i would conceptualize this would i be correct in in our results we we usually uh in this paper we didn't find uh, a very big effect for openness uh, for openness to trade but there are many studies which which do find uh, which do find an effect um and trade uh, freedom of trade tends uh, tends to be beneficial in general uh, but is also dependent on the ability uh, of the country to uh, to compete internationally so uh, depending on the, on the situation of each country on the degree of competitiveness of its firms uh, it may sometimes uh, be appropriate to give some uh, protection to infant industries or so that they have some room to develop and then greater openness to trade and, and greater flexibility of foreign trade comes afterwards um, of course it's always uh, difficult to um, to liberalize uh, to know exactly when to liberalize trade but uh, but this could be uh, could be an option uh, which uh, actually was followed by by many countries in the, in the past so it may happen that in, a, in some country for some countries it may not be optimal to uh, com have completely free trade right away uh, but to progressively go go in that uh, in that direction regarding regarding regulation i, I think the uh, a finer analysis is is, is necessary to um, really uh, be able to determine which type of regulation uh, is more important for for growth. That's kind of beyond the, the scope of this article, in which we just included one of the areas of the index of economic freedom, which is an index of regulation. But I think to to study that uh, particular that particular effect uh, more more efficiently, we would need to have more detailed data and to uh, and to design the, the model to test uh, to test for that. Because it may be that uh, in some areas regulation is more important for economic growth than than in others. And so we. In our paper, I think the analysis is not deep enough to be able to to answer that question. The scientific paper is How Does Political Instability Affect Economic Growth? from Ari Eisen and Francisco Vega. Professor, it was a great pleasure having you on the podcast. I will have you again so that we can talk about media freedom and electoral decisions and accountability, all that good stuff. But for now, again, I'm going to thank you so much for coming to the podcast. You are welcome. It was a pleasure.
I'm back and before we go to this week's ELF events, I would like to tell you that we are now also on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. And if you like our podcast, please consider giving us a five-star review and that way you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this last two weeks of November. On the 19th of November, in Brussels, we have Young Liberals Taking Charge of Europe, a liberal vision for Europe. What will the Europe look like? Which path to choose? What policies should be applied? The answers will be given at the book launch of the publication A Liberal Future for Europe. Politicians, alumni of LIMAC, young writers will be able to discuss and share their views, create an open space for dialogue and do some strategic planning. And then on the 21st of November, also in Brussels, we have AI in defense, regulating the robots. Autonomy in weapon system is not a new phenomena. However, there have been some recent progresses in innovation in the field of autonomous weapons that give armed forces the opportunity to utilize artificial intelligence in a wide range of offensive and mobile systems. Therefore, we need to know which functions can autonomous weapon systems perform without violating principles of humanity and what should lawmakers do and where to draw the red lines. Also on the 21st, but now in Budapest, in Hungary, we have reinventing liberalism on a local level, political autonomy, local business and global opportunities. In here, we'll have experts from Italy, Netherlands, Poland and Hungary that will discuss what liberalism means in their countries at the local level and how can this help local communities everywhere. And then from the 22nd to the 24th of November in Lisbon, Portugal, we have an event organized by LIMEC and ELF called Advocating Liberalism. This event is primarily aimed at capacity building of individual members of LIMEC. The knowledge and skills gained through this event will equip individuals with necessary skills on how to successfully lobby and campaign for liberal ideas at a micro level. This is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast is organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>